Well, please, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter uh, 11, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. It's Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, though it's, uh, you could refer to it more, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, and our scripture reading will be the first four verses, following which we'll sing together the Gloria Patri printed in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. We continue to think about how we may show our gratitude to God for his great mercy. And after having thought about our obedience according to the moral law, thinking about how it is that we can conduct our prayer life in a way that honors the Lord and what that means. So we're working our way through the Lord's Prayer. I would like you to turn to uh, back to Matthew chapter 6, if you would, Matthew 6. Ryan read this last week, but I want to revisit a little bit of it with you. Still by way of some introductory thoughts on the Lord's Prayer itself. So Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 1 through verse 8. Matthew 6, verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Amen. The failure of pagan and pharisaical praying that Jesus is highlighting in this particular passage is they're trying to bribe or manipulate God to answer their prayers by their many words. They doubt the goodness of God. They are ignorant of the character of God who knows what is best for us in any and every circumstances. And so they fill their prayer with these artificial things to make it seem like they're praying well. 
A godly prayer, on the other hand, is full of trust in the Father. Trust in the Father's will, that the Father knows in his will what is best. A godly prayer is at root uh, trusting in the goodness of God, that God is good and that he does all things well. And it's a confidence that he will give us what we truly need. Because you and I struggle with prayer in several different ways. The Bible talks to us about those things. We don't always know what to pray for. Paul in Romans 8 talks about that. He says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. There are times when we're going through difficulty, we don't know what to pray for. Uh, We struggle with that. We don't know what to ask for that's the best thing. But God does. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness uh, with his groanings, which cannot be expressed. We sometimes ask even for good things with wrong motives. That's what James talks to us about. He says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your lusts. Now, the word lust there doesn't have to mean something evil, something sinful. Uh, It just means desires. You can desire a very good thing. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. That's a good thing. But you and I sometimes are asking even for good things with wrong motives uh, to satisfy our own desires, to satisfy our own pleasures. And we're going to learn as we study this prayer, our top priority needs to be the glory of God. Uh, Prayer is built around that desire for God to be glorified. If you look further down in Matthew chapter six, verse 31, he says, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Now those are good things for you to pray about. Nothing wrong with praying about those things, but Jesus is trying to underscore a point. The pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. The father knows what you need. And when we're praying to him, uh, we don't have to pursue all the things that the pagans would pursue after. Prayer is such a vital part of our spiritual life. And the vigor and vitality of your spirituality is often connected to the, uh, the vitality of your prayer life. How is your prayer life? What part, what part of your life does it play? <clears throat> well, Jesus teaches us to pray in this, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, there are some who object to that title. Uh, they said it should really be named the Disciples' Prayer. <clears throat> there are parts of this prayer that Jesus would never pray. He would never need to ask for forgiveness. He is wholly harmless and undefiled, but it's not improperly 
entitled the Lord's Prayer is the Lord teaching us how to pray. And he provides this prayer for us for, I think, a couple purposes. One is to give us a pattern or a model for prayer. It's a very succinct prayer. It's easily memorized when we pray it in the, in the worship service. Uh, we, you all can join in immediately. The only thing we get a hiccup on is some who pray for forgive us our debts and others with forgive us our trespasses, <clears throat> which is right. Well, they both are. So you don't, they're in each of the selections of the Lord's Prayer. But it's a model prayer, a pattern for prayer, and using it as a prayer is not inappropriate. Our larger catechism asks the question, how is the Lord's Prayer to be used? And the answer is the Lord's Prayer is not only for direction as a pattern, according to which we are to make other prayers, but may also be used as a prayer as long as it is done with understanding, faith, reverence, and other graces necessary to the right performance of the duty of prayer. So it's appropriate to use it and say it just as it is, or to see in it a pattern or model for how we can form our our own prayers. Uh, Another reason I think Jesus gives us this prayer, not only to help us in our prayer life, but it really forms a pattern, a model of our life. Our life is to be directed to God the Father. It's to be prayed for the glory of God. It's to be prayed for the needs that we have. And as you look at the overview of the prayer, there's three portions of the prayer. The first is the preface, which we're looking at today, which is our identity in prayer. The second portion are the first three petitions which are all directed to the glory of God. The third portion of the Lord's Prayer is the final three petitions, which are directed to our needs. God is not indifferent to our needs, and so it's appropriate to pray for those. But we have to keep things in the proper order. So what is it that we gain from this preface, uh, which is our Father who art in heaven? We've had the Heidelberg Catechism, its thoughts. We, in our shorter catechism, they ask the same question. What are, we, what are we taught here? The answer in that is the preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children, as a, uh, as children to a father, able and ready to help us and that we should pay, pray with and for others. There are three elements to the preface that are very, very important for us to learn and think about and keep in mind. The first is the idea of community and fellowship in the word our. The second is our identity, our familiarity, our intimacy, as it were, with the Father. It's our Father. And then the third element is uh, a sense of adoration and reverence. It's our, our Father in heaven. And so the first element is the, in the, the little word, our. 
But it's important and it communicates an important part that when we pray, we are praying, certainly personally, (coughs) but we're part of a community, part of a community of faith. And we can't ignore that and we can't uh, reject that. You may be praying on your own in your closet, but you're part of a body. You're part of a covenant family. You're part of a, a church, the body of Jesus Christ. It's very important for us to see our connection to them, to empower our prayers, that we're part of a people of God. And it's a very important thing for us to keep in mind. One of the a main deficiency, a deficiency in, in the modern church is the loss of this sense of community. <clears throat> the evangelistic enterprise often says, says you need to come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, of course God has to be your Savior. But we also have to understand that we are not saved in a vacuum. We're not saved to be on our own. We're not saved to live Separately, we are saved as part of a body. The sacraments, we believe, I believe, need to be celebrated as part of the church, gathering of the church. Because the sacraments are not about what an individual does. The sacraments are all about what God has done for his people. Baptism is done individually to an individual, but at the same time it represents their being united by the blessing of God to a people. And the cleansing of the blood of Christ unites them to the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper is a fellowship meal, not to be had alone, but you need to have it with God's people and with God. And the warnings in 1 Corinthians 11 are all about people who are ignoring that. And when we pray, you and I need to pray with a sense of our connection to the other people of God. You may be alone physically, but you're not alone. You're praying with the saints that have gone on before and afterwards. And we see this talked about in different places, but one place in particular that it reflects the, the power of our prayers is in the relationship of marriage. Obviously, a husband and a wife need to have a sense of community, a connection. In 1 Peter 3, Peter says, Husbands, dwell with your wives in an understanding manner, giving honor to them as the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. A husband and a wife's prayers are hindered when they don't understand they are heirs together of the grace of life. There's that bond, that community that empowers our prayers. And our prayers are hindered when we allow something to get in the way of that. So Jesus' teaching begins with the sense of community, our Father. But then that second element, our Father. Old Testament Israel as a group would address God as Father. In Malachi, uh, the writer says, Have we not all one Father? Speaking of the nation. 
Has not God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? However, in the new covenant and under the teaching of Jesus, it's not just that we as a church can call God his father, but you are have the inestimable privilege to be called a child of God. Uh, It highlights your new identity as a child of God. You're not generically loved by God. You're specifically loved by God. You are his son. You are his daughter. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 1 talks about that. God predestined us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons by Jesus Christ uh, to himself according to his good pleasure and will. It was God's plan that you not be an orphan, but that you be adopted into God's family. Now I read a fair amount in the, doing the Ten Commandments from Thomas Watson's book on the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> he also has a wonderful book on the Lord's Prayer. A Banner of Truth Publishers has four of books that are selections from his work. One's on the Ten Commandments, one's on the Lord's Prayer, one's on the Beatitudes, one's called A Body of Divinity, which is a commentary on the shorter catechism. But he writes about this mercy of God calling us his children. He says, see the amazing goodness of God that he is pleased to enter into the sweet relation of a father to us. He needed not to adopt us. He did not lack a son, but we lacked a father. He showed power in being our maker, but mercy in being our father. That when we were enemies and our hearts stood out as garrisons against God, that he should conquer our stubbornness and of enemies make us children and write his name and put his image upon us and bestow a kingdom of glory. What a miracle is of mercy is this. It's a miracle of mercy. Behold, what manner of love is this that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. We have the inestimable privilege of being children of God. Now, it's not the only way to address God. There are other titles that believers have at different times used. One that comes to my mind initially is in Acts 4, when the church was encountering persecution at the very beginning. Uh, They... Uh, learn about that and they raise their voice with one accord and say, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And that word Lord at the beginning of their prayer is the word despot. Now you and I don't have keen feelings on the word despot, but the point that the believers were making and referring to him in that way uh, is that God is the sovereign one. Um, They could have said, Lord, sovereign one, and then cried out their concerns to him. They were understanding that he was the one in control. Certainly other titles like Lord, like Yahweh, Elohim, some of the names of God. But 
God gives us this name to call him Father. And it's to communicate uh, to us a sense of familiarity, a sense of intimacy with God. Again, from Watson, princes on earth give themselves titles expressing their greatness as high and mighty. God might have done so and expressed himself thus, our king of glory, our judge. But he gives himself another title, our father, as an expression of love and condescension. That he might encourage us to pray to him. He represents us under the sweet notion of a father. Our Father. The name Jehovah carries majesty in it. The name Father carries mercy in it. It encourages our trust. It encourages our dependence. This is not someone who is distant from us. This is someone who intimately we are familiar with. Who cares for us. And so we can cry out to him, Father. We... uh, can call out to him in the, in the great sense of his person. Uh, in one sense, it's not that the other members of the Trinity are excluded. One more quote from Watson. He says, though the Father only be named in the Lord's Prayer, yet the other two persons are not excluded. The Father is mentioned because he is first in order. But the Son and Holy Spirit are included because they are the same in essence. As all the three persons subsist in the one Godhead, so in our prayers, though we name but one person, we pray to all. So we have our Father, and then the third element is who is in heaven. And it clearly stresses the divine glory and honor that God is worthy of. We are on earth, he is in heaven. We are earthly, he's heavenly. We are finite, he is infinite. We lack power, he has all power. It serves to distinguish him not just from earthly fathers who love us and do well for us, but it, it, uh, it not only just distinguishes a, a, the, him from them, <clears throat> but it, it has two results of us understanding our father in heaven. One is it calls us to reverence our exalted father. We are not to think of him in any kind of earthly manner. Uh, it's fine to have familiarity and intimacy with, with God, but we need to have an attitude of reverence and humility. You know, a person who becomes a Christian and hasn't really been taught anything they might say, well, I need to talk to the big guy upstairs. And we might cringe a little bit, but we wouldn't want to have a conniption fit about that. We'd want to instruct him. There's a a better way to do it. And, And we have to understand that prayer is familiar to our father, but he's in heaven. And there's a sense of reverence and honor Uh, and majesty about him that we need to recognize. Uh, A second thing about him being in heaven that's very, very important is it it gives to believers, children of the Father, a firmer trust in his care because he's in heaven. 
And what that means is the things that threaten you and me in our lives, accident, disease, um, anger of men, fear of the future, all these things that threaten us, appropriately threaten us, they're no threat to him. Because he's not on earth, he's in heaven. Not in heaven in the sense of removed and indifferent and unconcerned. Not in that sense in any way. But God's sovereign plan will not be thwarted. The anger and the hostility of men will not frustrate him. In Psalm 2, we have the kings of the earth taking their stand against the Lord and his anointed. And what is God's response? Is it to wring his hands and say, oh, woe is me, what's going to happen? No, it's to laugh at puny man and the threat he's trying to make against the purposes of of, uh, his, his own purposes and will. And you and I as children, this is who we know. We know this one who loves us is concern for us is interested in our needs but who can't be frustrated or threatened by the the hostility of men in this world and we know that his purposes for us are good and they will always be carried out and his purposes will be fulfilled and so it gives us a great confidence in our father that i can depend on him I may not know what the circumstances are going to be, but I can depend on God. I can depend on the Father. And so we have these three wonderful qualities of our identity in prayer, our our sense of community, our bond with our fellow brothers and sisters as we pray. That we're joined together with them. That we have this pervasive sense of familiarity and intimacy with our heavenly father that breeds a childlike love and trust. And we have uh, the sense of adoration to our father who is in heaven that pervades our prayers with a a humility, a, a, a trust, an awareness of the glory of God. It's three things that should characterize our life as Christians. Community, Intimacy with God, trust, because he's in heaven. May those things characterize our life and our prayers. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the instruction here in prayer. We thank you, Lord, that we have the freedom to come into your presence and worship you and bring our requests to you. Thank you for the many encouragements in your word to that end. Help us, O oh Lord, to live our lives in the principles of our relationship with one another and with you. And we might pray and live our lives in a way that brings honor to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.